0: Hi, I'm Alice Living, best selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. My guest today is someone who burst onto our screens as the go-to expert for news channels when the pandemic began to unfold. Debbie Shrida is a public health researcher who is both professor and chair of global public health at the University of Edinburgh. Her research considers the effectiveness of public health interventions and how to improve developmental assistance for health. She has written two books with another on the way, her first titled The Battle Against Hunger, Choice, Circumstance, and the World Bank, and Governing Global Health, Who Runs the World and Why, which she co-wrote with Chelsea Clinton. She brings a plethora of expertise from her vast and varied career, and I cannot wait to delve into
1: hearing more today. So, Debbie, how are you? Great. I mean, excited to be here and a bit starstruck, as I just said, because um, one of my main non-work hobbies is 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 fitness and well-being and you are i guess the icon of that now here in
0: here in britain it's really exciting to have you and um no i'm very i'm very excited to chat to you about your fitness later on because i know that we'll we'll have lots to say there (laughs) um but we come to you know to chat to you after what i'm imagining has been an incredibly busy few years for you i mean like i said in the intro you really shot onto our screens as someone that everyone wanted to have a piece of because of your expertise in the field that you work in. How did that sort of feel? Well,
1: it was a bit surreal, I think, because our team and our research team, and it's not just me, it's kind of a whole bunch of us here at Edinburgh have been working on infectious disease management for years. And there's not much interest in this. I mean, think of measles and across the world or malaria outbreaks. People just don't seem interested in that kind of thing in their daily life. And all of a sudden, to have that happening here, locally, to have people worried about infectious diseases in Scotland, across Britain, across the states, it was just absolutely surreal to kind of live through. It. And I guess all we could do is keep producing the research, keep doing the analysis and trying to explain to people what was happening. Because I think people were just so confused by everyday things changing, and just trying to simplify it as much as possible. It, to speak in like normal language, so that it was accessible to Whoever wanted to learn about it, definitely.
0: Now, you spoke when we were speaking before actually starting the podcast. You described yourself as an American, so I wanted to ask you really about your start in life to begin with. We are obviously going to come on to all the other stuff that you just mentioned, but you know, I found it really interesting how how you get into you know working on what you work in. You have such a vast experience. You have lived in many places across the world, and I wondered if you could maybe share how you first became interested in public health and what really encouraged you. I guess, to explore a career in science, particularly.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Miami, a child of um, in- immigrants. And in Miami, my earlier interests were much more like in animals, like dolphins and alligators. And Miami's full of bizarre creatures like iguanas and things. It's, it's, it's a city full of animals. <laughs> um, and then, um, unfortunately, my dad got very sick when I was 12, when I was just getting into high, what they call high school there, a senior school here. And um, and all of a sudden kind of got my interest in health, because if you're not really healthy, if you have chronic pain, if you have going your chemo, if you are having even something like back pain can really cause people to lose their joy for life. And so that got me into kind of the idea of, well, how do we keep people healthy? How do we avoid the kind of suffering that I was seeing with my with my dad? And um, he eventually died, but that kind of sparked my interest in medicine. And I started medical school, and what I found is it's very individualistic and focused on, you know, how do we treat people? But it's after they're sick. It's like people show up in hospitals, and you're like, well, how do I fix this? And I was like, well, how do we stop them coming into hospital in the first place? And that's the core of public health and the difference to medicine. Public health is really about what do we do to keep people healthy? And a lot of that has to do with underlying. Um, determinants, like having access to good food, having access to clean air, having good housing that's not damp or cold so you can actually not constantly have chronic infections. And so that's kind of what spurred my interest. I went into that to do a PhD and went to India to kind of into a simple question like, why are so many kids dying in a country that's a middle-income country and has so much wealth? And it really goes back into that, which is kind of the social conditions that make people healthy. Yeah. And then that, my career just went from there working on different projects, a mix, largely infectious diseases, because I was focused on developing countries. And so kind of looking at, how do we start addressing big issues like HIV or addressing um, plague? And a lot of the systems to respond to these are not disease specific. They're actually, how do you create that infrastructure? And so when COVID came onto the scene, we had already like have been working on so many different outbreaks, including Ebola most recently. So it was kind of just transferring that knowledge into a new disease, but on a scale that no one had really seen for, I guess, a century.
0: Yeah. And, and and I guess, um, you know, being a woman in science is a huge deal. I think that when I was reading up before we jumped on here, uh, I think it was 28% of, of the workforce in science are women, which is a huge disparity. And I just wondered, have you ever felt that inequality? Have you ever felt that as a woman, maybe you have to work harder or you have to sort of feel like you have to do more to get your seat around the table as such. I just found it really interesting that, you know, yeah. it's definitely a topic that gets talked about a lot here, getting more women into STEM subjects and trying to encourage more women to study things like science or engineering or medicine. You know, did you
1: feel that when you were sort of starting out in your career? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, when I work with a large team of women and men, but younger women, and my thing I always say is when you walk into a meeting, you have about two minutes to prove why you're there and you have to be really prepared you have, I'm sure you, you know this as well. So, on your, your be like, you, you have to show up, know what you're talking about. You can't really waffle about. Um, you have to be to the point and show you're competent. And I think also what's helped is that, you know, building relationships over a long period. So, the people I'm working with now, I might have met when I was doing my PhD, but now we've worked together for so many years that you can, you know, I can take up the phone to someone who's advising Biden on global health security and say, like, okay, what do you think on that? And because you've had that relationship over years and a good working relationship, being good to people means that you can kind of get much more done, much more productively and effectively. So I guess, you know, sometimes I guess my advice to younger women is first to kind of always show up, be prepared, and when there are setbacks, this is a bit controversial, like not to complain too much, but just to kind of keep going. And, um, and of course, complain to your friends and privately, but at work, just keep showing up, even if it's hard sometimes, as well as looking out for female mentors, like women mentors, and I was really lucky um, at Miami, when I was at Oxford and Edinburgh, wherever I've been to just kind of, I'm quite attracted to kind of senior women who have accomplished a lot and want to learn from them and have developed really good relationships with senior women that I've tried to learn from and then pass on to the women I work with. Though I don't like to think of myself as too old, but that's kind of the, you know, we have to learn from, from others who are there and, and then try to pass on that knowledge and kind of help, you know, women to create those networks that have been there for men for a long time. The old yeah. boys' network. Now we have to create the women's networks to support that. Definitely. And I think that's transferable to so many industries as well.
0: I don't think that's just public health or medicine or any of those. You know, like there are so many examples where even in fitness, like having female mentors or female, uh, you know, women that I look up to, I've definitely had those people in my life who have just given me that kind of guidance and that kind of confidence to be like, okay, I'm going in the right direction and I'm I'm doing okay. So now we have an understanding of how you kind of ended up where you are in Edinburgh. And you know i don't want to focus this whole conversation on talking about the pandemic because i think you know as i men- mentioned in the introduction you bring so much more to the table than that but i think it is a really important time to talk about it i remember tweeting you i wrote a tweet to you really early on in the pandemic and um i just said something like i felt like you talked in such an accessible way and you made such you know it is such a complicated subject really accessible and easy to understand and i wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you found it being placed on such an important pedestal and having that role of communicating such a complex and nuanced and difficult subject matter to you know people like myself and and how you kind of you know went through that that process of trying to make it more accessible
1: yeah i think what's really helped me is i'm not that intelligent and so <laughs> i have to so for me to understand something it takes a while but once i understand it i can probably explain it to anybody even children In a sense, because I understand it at such a basic level Um, and lots of things I don't understand. But luckily, this is my area that I've been working in for a number of years. So I think with a lot of things when I was sitting in advisory meetings and there's a lot of jargon, I kind of try to get rid of all that and just get back to the essence of what are we actually talking about in terms of how does this spread? And what does that mean in terms of what we communicate to people? What are the different trajectories? and just try to get it back to basics and really simple language because it's how also my like how I think and it's also how I write my book is coming out. It's very simple language Um, because I think if this also like in my normal job, I teach and I teach students first year medical students who are 17, 18 and they will turn off and be watching Netflix on their phones if they don't follow what you're saying and it gets too complicated. And so that's why I think kind of probably teaching helped me when doing this kind of stuff because for me, I was just sitting in front of a camera in a dark room. and speaking and trying to explain it as I would explain it to, let's say, my students to the general public. So yeah, probably my teaching experience helped. But at each point I was just trying to kind of understand things for myself, digest it, analyze it, and then communicate it. So it's kind of like a loop coming in and out. And I think it's hard as well because we live in an environment where
0: people have access to so much information. And actually, that's almost what makes it harder. Like there are people like yourself who were great at giving like a really clear message and it was really accessible. But then you have 10 different platforms that offer 10 different alternatives or different voices and it becomes very difficult sometimes to, you know, who's right? Who's wrong? Who do we trust? Who don't we trust? I I, I sometimes find that very difficult. Um, even now, you know, with the, with the media, it's sometimes hard to find those voices that you really connect with that go, okay, I can really, I get that subject now. I get what she's trying to say or he's trying to say. Um, but I really felt that you did cut through. But at the same time, one of the things that I really felt for you for was being placed on that pedestal came with its challenges. And, you know, without, you know, trying to dig up too much I I saw firsthand on, you know, for example, on your Twitter, how many people just were so angry at you. And that must have been really difficult to deal with. You know, it was a divisive subject matter, but you were just doing your job and I think that, that I found really difficult to see. And I, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think when I talk to other scientists, that's probably where we always start our conversations, which is like, how rough has it been for you? And I also come to later. little bit, like my, my book starts with that kind of death threats that I've received and kind of the shock you feel, which is, you know, in public health, we're usually the good guys, right? Like we're the people who are trying to go into underprivileged neighborhoods and figure out how we get kids healthy meals or in India trying to kind of get bed nets out. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we do. It's not glamorous, but at least it's kind of like, you know, You know, you know boots on the ground, frontline work. So to go from that to being people telling you you're evil, that you're killing children because you're advocating for vaccines, that you caused COVID. So there's a whole conspiracy that this has been caused, that it's a hoax. Um, It was quite shocking, and I think I wasn't prepared for that because you never, we never had anything like this. And when I would do communications around, let's say Ebola a couple years ago, it just didn't trigger that response. Um, but I think all you can do is kind of try to protect yourself and I know I'm curious how you've dealt with that as well because I think all these platforms bring that out is just kind of yeah bring there's silent majority hopefully it's helping them and kind of not to try to get affected by the minority which I think is a minority online who have very extreme views and get them amplified Mm -hmm. but in real life I think it's really different I've never had anything happen to me in real life where I would say like oh I felt threatened or uncomfortable people generally are just like they don't recognize me at all or if they do they're like oh I really like your post and they help me on this and this so I've never had someone in real life kind of attack me the way I've been attacked online
0: yeah and that's the thing like a lot of it is people are bolstered in terms of confidence because they are behind a screen and you have to remind yourself of that but you know that doesn't mean that people aren't threatened in real life and and sometimes this stuff does spill into real life which does scare me and I think that um, you know, one of the things you said there, which is the silent majority tend to be more positive, but it's always those negative voices that get the most weight. And, you know, I, I always use the example, like I could have a hundred really positive comments on something, but if there's one that's like really nasty or really, you know, rude or whatever, it's always the one that sticks with you, even though there's so much other good stuff going on. But I think that, you know, for yourself, it's also and this is gonna sound bad, but in my industry, it's almost expected that that stuff comes along with it. It's almost expected that at some point, someone's probably going to find an issue with what you do because you've opened yourself up to a platform. But I think with you, like you said, the difficulty is where you are supposed to be the good guy and you're only doing what you believe to be true, You know, sticking to the science, following the evidence and doing what you believe to be the right thing. And I'm going to say it because it really bothers me, You are the expert. You know, there are people that have literally like never done a science (laughs) exam in their life. And they're suddenly like infectious disease experts and all this sort of stuff. But I think that must just have been really challenging. Um, But how did you find yourself? What were your coping strategies? Like I know that I have the things that I do when I'm finding online difficult, when I find, you know, trolling or whatever hard. But I wondered how you found
1: yourself coping over the last few years. Well, I think one thing is I tried to keep recognizing it's not real. In the sense of like, you know, what is real in my life are the people I interact with, the conversations I have, faces, names, (laughs) real people. And so much of what's coming in terms of abusive is from anonymous, you know, Maggie27832 says, you don't have a PhD. So are you really going to fight with someone (laughs) online about what you are and aren't? I think exercise and trying to kind of get the endorphins going, I think there is definitely that. Um, and I think also sometimes I do find it hard and I acknowledge it is hard. Everyone finds it hard. I mean, there are footballers who find it hard. I mean, they are actresses. I think a lot actually, funny enough, the past few years of Caroline Flack, because I just, you know, before I had gone through this, I had thought, well, she had everything, right? She was young, she was successful. She was, I thought, why would someone like that be suffering so much? And I think when you realize how difficult it is to be in the public eye, especially if your private life is quite shaky, I can kind of have a lot of now empathy for what it is like. To just be constantly all you hear is shouting and all you hear is criticism and all you hear is everything you got wrong Um, and so just as important to take care of your mental health and just kind of (laughs) realize to block that off that's one thing i hope in the future that we'll be better at that when people do step forward in any kind of public role whether it's reality tv or sport or fitness or science that they've given support for that to say this is a universal phenomenon and this is how you can cope with it because you kind of sometimes feel like oh why am i weak Like, why am I getting affected by this? Everyone is affected by that. And I think that's what's helped me to realize it's not just me being weak. It is difficult to deal with online trolling for everybody. Yeah. And this is a bit of a tangent, but just because you mentioned it, like, is there,
0: you know, within public health, as well as, you know, I guess taking into account the pandemic, taking into account the mental health crisis that has kind of spread across the UK, you know, we see all the stats of of things like depression, anxiety, uh, mental health disorders going up. Do you guys work on that as well? I guess it's not your specific focus, but I'm guessing that there is, there is work in that space to kind of have a collective approach to mental health.
1: Yeah. And it's coming out on a couple of things I'm involved with. So one is around health workers and health workers, mental health and burnout. I mean, I think people who worked in hospitals, often junior doctors witnessed really ill patients and had a difficult time. And so I think We're starting a project looking at how do we address address like burnout and mental health of those and health services who witnessed, you know, suffering and mass death at some point. Um, I think adolescents and and kids are another big issue. Like when you talk to pediatricians, that's the main thing they mention. It's also things like eating disorders and girls, it's manifest. Anxiety and depression are manifest through how they eat and their bodies. It's a massive one. I think that's also what I tried to do in my Twitter feed was... Yes, it was dire, but we had to provide people kind of milestones and hope to say, like, this is where the vaccine trials are. We're going to have vaccines by this date. This is what they can and can't do. And there will be an end to this. Like, pandemics do end. And I think right now we keep thinking it's never ending. And we will have a time where we don't need to worry about COVID the way we worry about it now. So there is this light. And I think sometimes when I was hearing a lot of the messaging, it was so depressing that people would think, well, is this going to be my life forever instead of realizing it might seem like forever, but we're going to get through the other side. And we largely have. I mean, I think we're still having people suffering from COVID, but it's not to the extent that we would have had had we not had vaccines as we kind of yeah. have to keep pushing ahead and showing people this is where we're going and this is why you need to keep going and this is the world we will live in which means you will have parties and see your friends and go to weddings. All the things that were taken away that do give people meaning, but in a mm-hmm. way were stopped for a certain period of time.
0: Yeah. So let's look forward then. I'd love to hear, how does a pandemic end? How do we get that? I mean, your book is basically, I'm guessing, going to give some kind of solution, but I'd love to hear from you about how how it you know because i can not tell
1: you <laughs> how does it actually end how does it how does it come to a sense of normality well we've had like a number of pandemics over so i think history is always the way we learn right from what has happened in the past and where are we now and if we look at you know 1918 the flu pandemic is probably the one that's closest to this but hiv has also been a pandemic ongoing what you see is that we develop scientific tools to manage it in a way that means daily life can continue and then it becomes what we might call endemic. And endemic doesn't mean harmless. I mean, measles is endemic and it kills 18,000 kids a year. So is malaria. But it kind of recedes into the background and daily life comes back into four, which we're kind of seeing now in Britain and the United States. So many people are still dying in the United States because they're unvaccinated. I mean, that's the tragedy, I think, in the United States. Britain is doing better because uptake is so high of vaccines. And I think it's because of trust in the NHS and in the science, kind of science and expertise coming out of the NHS. But yeah, it'll be... You know, not overnight, but it'll be when we get vaccination coverage, in my view, across the world, similar to what we have in Britain. And when we are able to kind of move forward and say, actually, yes, we can manage this in the way we manage road traffic accidents and the way we manage flu and the way we manage other diseases. The FT recently did an analysis which shows that actually the mortality rate has fallen now below flu across all ages because of vaccines. And I think that's the message to people that Vaccines have been the success. So many lives have been saved. And that's the real story now if you look at New Zealand versus Hong Kong. New Zealand has, I think, only like, you know, a few percent of elderly people unvaccinated. Hong Kong has about 70 percent. Hong Kong is seeing mass death. New Zealand isn't. And so I think we have those positive stories of how, you no, know, we're not going to eradicate SARS-CoV-2 or COVID, but we will find a way to live alongside it where it's not causing the destruction it, it has caused in the past. We'll be back after this.
0: Welcome back to Give Me Strength. It's so interesting. And I think that there are moments where in my life right now, you sort of think, oh, okay, we're sort of back to normal. And then, for example, my mom, like she's really sick in bed and I'm like, oh God, okay, there's still something, you know, there and we still have to be cautious. And I think that it's really interesting that you reference a whole world approach as well. It can feel very much sometimes quite individualistic in terms of, you know, us looking at just the United Kingdom. But if we want to get back to the whole world normality, i.e., being able to travel, being able to do all of these things, we don't have to look, I guess,
1: outside of our borders. I'm guessing definitely. And this whole thing has been a little bit like having a time machine. If you could look at other places, so people always ask me, like, in March here, or how would you know this is this was going to happen? I'm like, well, just follow Lombardy in Italy in February, and follow in January Wuhan in China like this unfolded in real time that if you know what was going to happen you only had to look somewhere else across the world and i think right now even variants like delta causing this surge in india we were kind of watching you know what is happening in india that was yeah. going to happen here right and yeah. that now i think with omicron we saw that emerge in south africa say you are going to take a wave it'll be a bit milder in terms of, compared to delta but you're going to take a wave and then we took the wave so i think that's going to be important going forward because the main unpredictability element is will we see another variant? And what will that mean? And that means constantly having to be in touch internationally with countries to say what is happening? Are you seeing anything unusual? Are you seeing a new wave? Have you sequenced that wave to understand why you're seeing that so we can get ahead of it instead of being behind it because that's kind of a glimpse into our future if we Mm. can keep an eye on other parts of the world.
0: Mm. It's really interesting because it kind of leads on to my next question which is really about, you know, working in public health, you kind of straddle science and policy and um it must be difficult and i'm sure you had a huge amount of frustration although i'm sure you're going to be incredibly diplomatic in terms of how you answer this about how you found that challenge over the last few years you know there are people in government who are wanting to do x there are the scientists who are suggesting y and at some point you sort of i guess had to have some sort of collaborative approach but did you find that particularly challenging? And I guess it's an ever-present challenge for those working in public health.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess there's two challenges. So one is at, at the start when I started doing media around this and saying, well, I don't understand why the UK government's doing this or why. You know, I remember Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying people, well, I was in a COVID hospital and, you know, shaking hands and all over. And you're like, this is not really right, according to kind of basic public health. And if what you would say that people would say, oh, you're being anti-Tory or you're being political or you're being you have an agenda. And I found that really hard because I said, like, I associate myself as being American. I try to stay away from as much as I can politics and kind of, but at a certain point, if someone says something that's not factual or is bad messaging, you have to correct it in my view, right? And so I think that was quite tricky is people kind of pulling you into a space which you don't really want to be. in. you're just commenting on kind of factually what is and isn't. But I think there was also the difficulty that there was a quite myopic view on this kind of short-term sighted view which was you know, when the first wave happened and it kind of went down, it was clear because we hadn't vaccinated the population and most people hadn't had COVID. So antibody surveys called seroprevalence surveys were showing it was only like 6 or 7% in London, which meant there were a lot of people, even in London, which you could say was an epicenter being hit, who hadn't had COVID and who weren't protected through vaccination. So they were going to get COVID at some point because this was going to keep spreading. Okay. So I think there, there was this vision, oh, it's gone and saying, well, no, no it's not gone. It's going to resurge because there's still all these people who are still susceptible, who haven't had it, and who aren't protected. So I think that's been frustrating. But then we get now to a point where if you look at those same surveys, they're showing antibodies over 98%, and that's a mix of vaccination and infection. And so my view is sometimes, okay, I think the government might be doing things that are actually reasonable and fine, and the people say, oh, now you're pro-Tory. <laughs> they're like, no, I'm not pro or anti-Tory. I'm just commenting on where are we based on the data and what does that mean in terms of our measures? Um, and so yeah, it's been tricky and I think the leadership as well, um, having someone who kind of likes to gamble and there were a few gambles in this um, pandemic in terms of oh we're not going to get hit that badly, it's going to mutate really fast, it's something milder instead of someone who was maybe a bit more cautious in their leadership and kind of went slower yeah. was maybe that kind of leadership style which sometimes as a scientist where you're very cautious is a bit, is a bit challenging. Mm, yeah, definitely. I think um, I think it'd be really interesting
0: if you could answer, looking back from a from a, with your public health hat on, what have been the biggest learnings from the last two years? What do you feel that as a collective you guys have learned
1: the most? And then I'm also going to ask you it from a personal perspective too. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think the first one is that science delivers solutions, and I think there was this kind of fatalism that. It's going to keep spreading. We're all going to get it. And so stopping or delaying spread makes no sense. And that was, I think, a strong debate in the scientific community, which is like, can we stop this? And if we can stop it, at what cost and for what purpose? And I think what's amazing is not having a coronavirus vaccine in the past to having multiple, which are effective, was just unbelievable in less than a year. And so i think the ambition has gotten even higher now to say well actually for the next i don't want to talk about the next one but for the next outbreak could have pandemic potential could we do it faster can we get a vaccine in 50 days 100 days 150 days instead of a year and so i think the ambition of the science community has actually gone up which is great to say actually why did we think we couldn't do this science could do it but also things like mass testing can you imagine at the start of the pandemic having lateral flow tests where you can test at home and know your result in 15 minutes and change your behavior based on that like that was the stuff of dreams we now have that um therapeutics we now have um you know drugs that keep you out of hospital these oral kind of pills people can take in the first few days if they think they're going to get at risk of critical illness and now even more kind of genetic markers that seem to indicate why actually some people seem to become severely ill and others don't so there might be like why are eight, some 80 year olds asymptomatic and some 20 year olds dying of it there seems to be some genetic basis to this, so now we can understand it, which means maybe have better target, you know, targeted treatments or targeted okay. kind of risk profiles. So I think the big lesson for science is that we have to deliver the solutions and that they are coming, and then you just have to buy time to stop or delay the spread. I think that's what they're working on now, which is what does it mean for the next one? Which might come in the next year or two. That's scary, but I guess the reality. <laughs>
0: um, we'll talk about that in a second. But also, yeah, from a personal perspective, what would you say are your personal biggest learnings?
1: I think it's to and I think many people went through is like enjoy simple daily pleasures and to kind of live locally and live minimally and live simply. That actually um, you know, we went through I mean, I feel fortunate to have gone through, you know, a lockdown with um no one close to me badly affected. But I think just to say what today will make me happy, what today is going to, it could be a nice meal, it could be seeing friends, it could be going for a good workout, but like, what can you do locally to kind of have that joy in your daily life? Because I think sometimes we try to kind of put in big career milestones or big things as things that make us happy instead of thinking like, actually, every day there's like little moments of happiness in our monotony, if you could say, the daily life. And I think the second was relationships, like how important relationships are, whether it's family or friendships, or even, I joke, joined like a boot camp in the park with a bunch of other women every morning and just seeing the same women every day helped. We were allowed to do outdoor exercise because you felt a community and you could see people okay. and talk. We're social, we're human. And I think okay. those relationships are things. So the first thing I did this Christmas when I could was go back and see my family in Miami. Mm -hmm. Because I've always thought, oh, I can just jump on a plane and see them. And all of a sudden you realize you can't. You realize actually... That, those are the things that really mean the most in life. It's like the people who you love and you enjoy spending time with. Yeah, yeah definitely. My final question on COVID
0: before I move on, because I, I said I don't want to dwell on it too much, but <laughs> it is it is very topical. And it's an issue that I think, yeah, it's still ever present in our lives. So it is interesting to hear your perspective. My final question is really around long COVID. I think the stat at the moment is that 1.5 million people are suffering with long COVID or you know long-term symptoms of their COVID infection. And I really wondered, from a public health perspective, how you guys see tackling that as an issue, and and perhaps why
1: that is so prevalent. Yeah, this is a major issue, and this was one that I don't think we fully understood till there were so many people infected, and we started seeing this. So this is the condition where people seem to suffer for weeks, months, possibly years now, with long term effects from the virus, ranging from fatigue to, you know, heart palpitations to changes to your, you know, to diet, getting diabetes early. So it's a whole range of issues, and. I think now the real issue is kind of documenting it, which has been done, so we understand the prevalence, then understanding the underlying biology of why is this happening, and then developing treatments. And luckily, I think we there will be things on, you know, coming available in the next six to 12 months. That's kind of the time frame. But it is, um, I think this is a really, really tricky issue because the real toll of COVID may not be in the lives lost. It might be the people who live with some kind of illness or disability in the coming months and years in a way they hadn't lived before COVID. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, the thing I think is many people beat themselves up for having got COVID or their children getting COVID or their loved ones and saying being responsible or feeling stigma or feeling guilt. And the thing I wanted to say is, this is a virus that seems to get everyone randomly, no matter how cautious you might be right now. And so just to take away that guilt and that stigma and that shame and just say that actually, it's not your fault if you got COVID. It is really infectious if you are suffering from long term symptoms, let's try to help you. I think we have to kind of accept that it's nobody's fault. And there's only so much you can do to prevent infection in your daily life now.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think you're right. There's a lot of sometimes guilt and shame attached to just getting it, especially early on. It was like, oh, what have you done then? And I just think like, yeah, you're right. It's it's so prevalent. And um I do really hope. I think I've had close friends who have suffered uh, with long COVID and I think that um, more support is definitely needed. And and I think that now people are talking about it more and there seems to be more funding into research and stuff. I think that's, that's a real positive and I hope it will help those people. Looking forwards, aside from COVID, which public health issues do you feel need most of our focus right now in the UK particularly? Um, where do you see uh, the kind of the the other areas that need help
1: yeah so I think globally the biggest issue that's worrying me is actually girls education and how many girls were taken out of school when schools were shut and it seems like an education issue but it's actually a health issue because the biggest way that we've seen gains in child mortality falling and women having fewer children but them surviving in poor countries has been through educating women and educating girls and making sure they stay in school and what we've seen with school closures globally some schools closed for two entire years i mean i think we think they're bad enough in britain but that's britain is actually on the good end of the spectrum in terms of trying to keep mm. schools in person learning as many girls don't go back to school they get married early or they get to jobs or whatever it is and so that worries me in terms of kind of the gains we've made in children surviving because it's so tightly linked to how educated women are here in britain the the major issue i think is around childhood obesity and child well-being because what we saw is already Britain wasn't great in terms of physical activity of children and their diet and under lockdown it actually went backwards. Actually obesity jumped in, in children. Physical activity fell, screen time went up, which is kind of understandable because a lot of physical activity is done through school or through clubs or yeah. through sports, things for children. And of course you see the inequality coming out. Basically the kids who were fit got fitter and the children who were unhealthy got unhealthier and kind of that, that split as well. And so i think that's going to take time to kind of address that because these are the kind of issues which are really hard to change 10 they have long-term effects okay. in five to ten years in terms of the development of having early onset diabetes or having high blood pressure or having uh, even things like heart disease and cancer and stroke are so tightly linked to that so that i wish like we would do more about kind of children and was like what have happened what has happened to children in these two years mental health we've spoken about I think that's a major one but I think childhood kind of fitness physical activity and weight is another one because we know obesity is um, a really um, bad in terms of developing future disease
0: and so if I were going to give you a hypothetical magic wand and you could only change one thing in the world right now what would you be looking to change
1: I think it would be giving all children access to kind of safe green space and ability to kind of be in a safe environment with schools open and back. I think that's, I mean, I would say vaccines there, but I think the longer term issue is really around the next generation. Yeah. I mean, the other issue that we're going to go off onto a bit of a tangent here, but I think it comes into public health is actually how much underlying issues are caused by kind of racism and skin color. And I go into this in my book, looking at kind of what happened in the States with why black Americans were dying so much more than white Americans. And I just don't understand why we still kind of judge each other so much based on skin color when it's just pigmentation. I mean, it's literally how much sun we're used to getting in the past. So we've developed the pigmentation. I think a lot of issues in the world would be solved if we saw each other as a kind of a common humanity and not divided ourselves based on religion or skin color or ethnicity and all the kind of fake boundaries we put up instead of recognizing we're all kind of very similar underneath the superficial outside in
0: relation to the race and the thing i think you know whether um people accept it or not it shows that there is clear systemic racism still present in almost every environment you know in the world and i think that the inequality that you spoke about before uh and the health outcomes of people from um black and, and mixed ethnicity backgrounds just kind of puts it down in evidence really that, that that's still the case.
1: Yeah. And I think like we saw this like, you know, in the States right in the middle of the pandemic. I don't know if you remember, there was the Black Lives Matter protests. And of course you could think, well, why would these people be gathering in a pandemic when there's, you know, a risk of getting COVID, a spreading COVID, you have masses of people um kind of sparked by the George Floyd incident. And I think when you, you know, talk to people from these communities, it's because they're saying, well, we're more worried about police violence than we are of COVID. We're more worried about kind of the underlying That for us is a bigger health concern to our daily life and our health yeah. than the pandemic. So I think that's, it's really interesting when you speak to people and kind of what matters to them in their daily life in terms of Mm -hmm. having a full and and good life. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to properly read your
0: book. I've I've had a PDF sent over and I've had a flick through it and it looks amazing. So I really can't, I can't wait to read it. And so when does the book come out? So the book
1: comes out the twenty first of April, so just in a few weeks.
0: Yeah. Ah, oh, so exciting. Okay, I can't wait to read it. Um, and my final question for you today—you've been amazing, and and I really feel like this has been so insightful. But I'd love to know where you see yourself in ten years' time. What would you like to be working on? What would you like to be doing?
1: Well, <laughs> hopefully wow. not, not as much in a pandemic. <laughs> well, the book ends with me paddleboarding in the Pacific, and um, so hopefully <laughs> something like that. Um. But I hope that like continuing to just have a meaningful life and do meaningful work and hopefully continue to communicate science and, you know, helping people navigate the complex world of too much information to understand Mm -hmm. what's relevant in terms of public health. Um, And also, yeah, trying to just inspire people in their daily life to make healthier choices um, to, um, if they can, policymakers to think, how do we make that better? How do we make bus travel cheaper? How do we make... Um, cycling lanes safer. I mean, this is the kind of work I'm really interested in, which is kind of a broader view of public health and well-being beyond how do we save people once they're once in hospital? Because in a way, Mm -hmm. it's so so late in the process got to go all the way up upstream.
0: Well, thank you so much for today. This whole podcast centers around strength. And I think when we were coming up with our guest list of people, I just felt like you really demonstrated over the last two years how to show strength and poise through the most challenging of times and I really am so grateful for you sharing all of your insights today it's been it's been brilliant so thank you so much I can't wait to read the book properly um and keep doing your amazing work (laughs) thanks Alice it's lovely to chat to you Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I would love it if you could take some time to rate, review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it. We have a new episode dropping each week. So this will also ensure you don't miss out. See you next time.
1: Insanity
0: Group.